welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today is Velika Sabota in Bulgaria. It is Great Saturday, they call it, because tomorrow is Orthodox Easter. Um, the Orthodox Christian Church celebrates Easter at a different time than the Roman Catholic Church. So this week has been an entire week of different sorts of activities and people are dying eggs and they're going to, you know, go to the church tonight with candles at midnight. Uh, it's a, it's a really big, huge holiday here in Bulgaria where families get together sort of in very similar way that Americans might, you know, do family dinners and things around Thanksgiving. But as the situation in Ukraine continues, many families are deeply divided in Bulgaria about what's happening in Ukraine. And quite a few Bulgarians are actually pro-Putin, pro-Russia, and um, that has created a lot of tension. And so I'm really hoping that things will stay somewhat civil. I have myself, you know, various kind of family events that I'm going to be attending and friends and, and seeing larger groups of people than I have seen in a really long time, given the COVID uh, situation in the last couple of years. And so it's been very touchy whether or not you're allowed to talk about politics. Anyway, I haven't done one of these in a while and I've been, you know, busy with lots of other things, but I decided today to start reading uh, a little pamphlet that Colin Tai published in 1918. Uh, it's called Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. And the translation that I have is actually from a pamphlet that was published in 1971 in the UK uh, with an introduction by somebody named Sheila Robotham, who has also just published an incredible memoir uh, with Verso Press and has very generously agreed uh, to blurb my new book, which will be coming out in July. And I'm really thrilled that the people at Verso were able to get uh, so many excellent, really quite, I'm very humbled by how many people agreed to blurb the book, including the Slovenian philosopher uh, Slavoj Žižek and the historian Vijay Prashad, Grace Blakely, and uh, Agnieszka Mrozik, who's at the Polish uh, Academy of Sciences, uh, Jody Dean and uh, a few others. I'm just really, you know, pleased. Uh, I think the book is actually getting ready to go to the printers on Monday. So today I'm going to read this uh, introduction. It's actually in place of a forward. It's Colin Tai's own introduction of these articles that she reprinted in 1918. And of course, the context of this piece is the need to work with women within the context of the larger party structures. And the situation is that the revolution has happened, they're in the Civil War, and Kolontai realizes that the organization of women needs some guidance, and they don't have a lot of guidance, and there's actually very little material for them to draw upon. So she very hastily 
is going to reprint some articles that she wrote prior to the Russian Revolution. And this is her little introduction to why she's reprinting those articles and what she would change if, you know, she had the time to rewrite them or rework them, which obviously she didn't. At 1918, she was a commissar of social welfare. So this is women workers struggle for their rights. This is just in place of a forward. Alexander Kollontai from 1918. This pamphlet I am publishing is not new. It is a reprint of my articles which were published before the war. But the question of organization, which was put at the Congress of Women's Workers, brings onto the agenda of our party work a means of agitation among the mass of working women in order to draw them into the party and thus prepare new forces for the construction of communist Russia. Meanwhile, we are suffering from an acute lack of material, which could help our party comrades who are involved now in the organization of the Commission for Agitation and Propaganda among Women Workers. By giving them access to information about the history of the socialist movement of women workers and about how and what was done in the field of organization of the women proletariat in other countries. The poverty of our party literature on this particular question obliges me to agree to the reprint in hurried format of my previous articles without being able to rework them. If I were to write again on these same facts, I would evaluate many of them differently. The war and world revolution have brought essential changes in the character and form of all workers' communist movements. The ideal type of German party work, adapted exclusively to the period of peaceful parliamentary activity, has ceased to be a model for us. The revolutionary struggle has generated new problems, new fighting methods of work. The war and the revolution have shaken what seem to be the most stable foundations of life, and also... The position of woman has changed before our eyes. Up until the war, the process whereby women were drawn into the people's economy was carried out with considerably less speed than it has been for these last four and a half years of feverishly rapid development and the growth of female labor in all fields of industrial life. The old family, too, seemed firm and unshakable. The party had to fight against its way of life and traditions every time it wanted to bring the woman worker into the class struggle. The fact that housework was dying out and the transition to the state education of children were regarded not as mature, living, practical problems of the present day, but as a historical tendency, as a lengthy process. The feelings of the women workers were strongest in the economic field, the inequality of men's and women's pay, and in the political field, the absence of voting rights and the inequality in citizenship. This inequality on economic and political grounds, together with the enslavement of the woman to her family and the running of the house, created a psychological division between men and women workers and provided the soil from which grew those independent organizations of women workers which sprang up in all countries alongside the general workers' socialist parties in the form of societies or unions of women workers, clubs, and so on. The more actively the socialist parties became engaged in the business of propaganda amongst women workers, the quicker these special organizations for women workers died out. But only a radical change in the whole existence of the working class woman 
in the conditions of her home and family life, as she acquires equal status with men in civil law, will wipe out once and for all all the barriers which to this day prevents the woman worker from letting her forces flow freely into the class struggle. The war provided an impulse towards a radical break in the social position of women. It remains for the revolution to complete this task. The war drove the wet nurse to the front. Ninety women out of a hundred were forced to provide for themselves and their children. The problem was becoming acute. What to do with the children of all those millions of women who had to spend the greater part of their day in preparing military supplies, grenades, shrapnel, bullets? It was in this way that the question had to be posed, not as a theoretical problem and not as something desirable in the remote future, but as a practical measure, state security for maternity and childhood. The capitalist class governments were forced to worry about the fate of the soldier children, and unwillingly and half-heartedly they brought about a situation in which the care of children is the responsibility of the state. The departure of bridegrooms and fiancés to the war and the woman's fear for the fate of her loved one provided a natural reason for the increased number of babies born outside marriage. And once again, the bourgeois capitalist class was forced, under the pressure of war, to inflict upon itself a blow, to encroach upon one of its most sacred rights, on the prerogative of legal marriage. It was forced for the sake of the soldier's well-being to make equal, under the law, both legal and extramarital mothers and children. France, Germany, and England were eventually forced to this revolutionary act. The war not only disrupted the sanctity and stability of the indissoluble church marriage, but also encroached on yet another of the foundations of the family, housework. Rising prices, cues which exhausted the housewife, the system of delaying stock-taking until supplies had run out, all this led to a situation in which the women themselves hastened to do away with the domestic hearth, preferring to use communal facilities. The work of destroying the social slavery of woman as it was then was carried through by the great workers' revolution. Women workers and peasants participated in the great liberating struggle on an equal footing with men. The former specializations of the female sex collapsed as the social structure rocked on its twin pillars, private property and class government. The great fire of the world uprising of the proletariat called women from her baking tins into the arena of the barricades to fight for freedom. Women ceased to feel secure in her own home, alongside her familiar flagstones, drinking troughs and cradles. When all around bullets were whistling and amazed, she heard the cry of the worker fighters. To arms, comrades, all of you who cherish your freedom, who have grown to hate the chains of slavery and deprivation of civil rights. To arms, workers. To arms, women workers. The revolution accustomed women workers to great mass movements, to the struggle for the realization of communism. The revolution in Russia won full political equality and equality of citizenship for women. The revolution fulfilled the demands of women workers from all countries equal pay for equal work. The revolution made it impossible for women ever again to be tied to their families. The revolution also abolished the previous forms of workers' movements, which had been shaped by the age of peaceful parliamentary rule. 
We are cut off from the period of the Second International, not only by four years, but a whole geological shift in the field of social and economic relations. And from this point of view, many of the articles printed here are out of date. But the main issue is not out of date. It is still very much alive. That fundamental theme which I have tried to make the main thread running through these articles, namely, the necessity of special work among the woman proletariat, separate within the party framework, and the setting up in the party of a special party machine, a commission, bureau, or group for this purpose. However profound are the changes which have been accomplished before our eyes in the life and economic structure of our country, brought about by the war and the revolution, However far Soviet Russia has marched forward along the road to communism, the legacy of the capitalist order has still not been eradicated. The conditions of life, the working class family's way of life, the traditions which hold captive the mind of woman, the servitude of housework, all these have still not died away. And insofar as all the factors which prevented a working class woman from taking an active part in the liberating movements of the proletariat before the war are still operative, insofar as even now the party still has to take into account both the political backwardness of women and the bondage of the woman worker to her family, so the necessity of intensive work among the women proletariat with the help of a party machine set up specifically for this purpose, remains as pressing as ever. The setting up of a commission for agitation and propaganda among women workers in the center and in the provinces will undoubtedly speed up this work. There was a time when the thought of specialized work within the party, which I had been advocating for since 1906, met with opposition even among my own comrades. But now, after the decision carried by the All-Russian Congress of Women's Workers and approved by the party, it only remains for us to get down to its practical implementation. Our party does not allow a separate women's movement or any independent unions or societies of women workers, but it has never denied the efficacy of a division of labor within the party and the setting up of such special party machines as would promise to increase the number of its members or deepen its influence among the masses. At the moment, Soviet Russia is in need of many new fresh forces, both for the struggle with the enemy and for the construction of the communist society. To create to educate these forces from the many millions of the female working population, such are the tasks of the Party Commission for Agitation and Propaganda among Women Workers. I would hope that this pamphlet might serve as some guidance for those of my comrades who intend to devote themselves to work among the female proletariat in particular. I hope that they will get from it the certainty that in taking upon themselves this difficult and sometimes thankless work, they are serving not the idea of the specialization of women, not a narrowly feminine business, but the whole task of building a united, strong, worldwide workers' party, which, before our very eyes, is achieving the bright new world of international communism. Alexandra Kolontai, Moscow, 1st of December, 1918. So, that essay, that little forward that she wrote to this pamphlet, I think really, again, brings up this key question about independent 
women's organizing versus women's organizing side by side with men in a united front of communist organizing. You know, many Western feminists, and especially during the Cold War, this was true, but I think it still is true today, you know, dislike the idea that the socialist countries in Eastern Europe really following the model that Kolontai instituted in the Soviet Union, which itself was taken as a decision at the Second International Congress of Socialist Women in 1910 in Copenhagen, this idea that you would not have an independent women's union or women's organization like the bourgeois feminists do, but make sure that women's organizing is under the umbrella of the wider party work. So it can be a special section. It has to be a special kind of activity. You know, she calls it the special agitation and propaganda to work with women workers. But she definitely makes it very clear in this essay that she doesn't want it to be a separate organization. And the fact that there were not separate independent women's organizations is one of the reasons why so many Western feminists during the Cold War did not consider women's activism in the Eastern Bloc countries to be feminist, to be pro-women. They saw it as a form of communist propaganda, basically a way of getting the party to more effectively propagandize women and to get women to support the party. They did not, they could, they didn't have the language to understand why the particular constellation of factors of the situation in Soviet Russia in the early 20th century kind of created the necessity for these within party women's bureaus rather than separate independent women's organizations, which were very much at the time associated with feminism, bourgeois feminism, such as the suffragettes and uh, people who were agitating for women's rights, but not necessarily for the rights of working class people. And so I think it's really interesting to think back and to think about these broader coalitions. It's something that I've written about in terms of Cold War era women's organizations in my book, Second World, Second Sex. It's also something that I've written about in the book that's coming out in July with Verso. The The subtitle of the book is Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women. And the, the five women, one of them, of course, is Kolontai, you know, are women who struggled in one way or another with these questions. And so in the next couple of episodes, I'm going to read the two articles that Kolontai included in this uh, reissued pamphlet from 1918 and discuss a little bit more about this tension, you know, what we today call sort of intersectionality, thinking about the intersections of race and class and gender and sexuality and other categories and vectors of difference and how we can organize broad and effective coalitions to advocate for social change without dividing ourselves into smaller and smaller groups, which are ultimately going to be less effective rather than, you know, a big coalition movement that can effectively challenge the many forces uh, that need to be challenged today. So, that's all I'm going to say for now. For those of you who celebrate Orthodox Easter, happy Easter tomorrow. I hope everyone is doing well. And thank you so much as always for listening and keep up the good fight.